And when he was president between 2016 and 2020, he removed the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement. 75% of all power that came online between 2016 and 2020 were renewables. So even though uh, Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement and want to stop climate change, the American people and American business did not. Not everyone makes the news, but behind every growth-driving experience, product, and transformation are experts who shape the outcome. Welcome to Behind the Growth, a podcast for digital leaders and those aspiring to become one. Each episode features a candid conversation with a remarkable individual. Join us as we focus on their struggles, wins, and lessons learned you won't find anywhere else. Let's get started. I'm your host, Imran Mia. Generally, my episodes are focused on technology and how that relates to the, the Canadian and global landscape of the tech sector. But today we're going to be talking about something that's very, very important to not just the tech sector, but our citizens, governments, uh, and stakeholders across the, across the globe. Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, my good friend, uh, Vince Gaspero, who was uh, formerly the managing director and head of sustainable finance at Royanet Capital, Scotia Bank, where he provided strategic direction, leadership, and oversight for sustainable finance within Canadian banking business banking. He has also served Prime Minister or former Prime Minister Paul Martin as special assistant. His background crosses all levels of government following on his appointment by the government of Canada to join the official delegation to the United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26. Vince was once again appointed to join the official delegation to COP27 and COP28. Without further ado, let me welcome Vince. Welcome to our podcast this morning. Well, thanks for having me, Imran, and thank you for that kind introduction. I I look forward to spending the next while together. And yeah, listen, you're right. The challenges we face from a climate perspective is daunting, but it's solvable. And I think we, you know, we, we, if we listen to a lot of the noise out there, it, it seems like we're doomed and I'm an eternal optimist and we have really smart people trying to solve this problem. And I think we're going to get there, but hundred percent, hundred percent. So before we get into the topic of, you know, climate crisis, climate disaster, climate change, <laughs> all those, those titles that we use to describe the, the, the nature of what we're going through in terms of the climate. Let me just uh, briefly spend a few minutes uh, talking about who Vince is. Uh, we talked briefly about your professional background, but uh, for our audience, just uh, help us understand your journey, of w- where you started and sure. where you're at today. Well, I, for, uh, sure, I, I'd love to do it. So I was born and raised in, in Toronto, North York in particular. So for your viewers who aren't from Toronto, that's sort of the top end of, of the city of Toronto. Born and raised here, live here with my, my wife and, and two daughters. I you know, went to uh, York University uh, for my undergrad, went to the London School of Economics, and also where I got a master's in uh, political economy. And I, I did an MBA, executive MBA down at Villanova University, 
which I have to say, go Wildcats. I'm a basketball fan. And, and also I'm a big Toronto Maple Leafs fan, which I can hear the booze coming from your, your, Absolutely. Uh, your, your viewers now. So, but yes, die, die hard and heartbroken Leaf fan for the 45 years I've been on this planet. So anyways, yeah, I, my career has sort of spanned both finance and government. Uh, you touched on it a little bit in my, in my bio. And, you know, I, I can say that my, my passion for the environment has always, has always been there. And I learned while frankly working for prime minister Martin, that the only way we're going to solve some of the big problems that the world faces is if there's that partnership, that sort of public private partnership between government and, and business, as well as the not-for-profit sector and academia. No one group can do it on its own. A lot of the problems we face, and you know, we've seen it over the last 10 or 15 years, be it financial crises, 2008, pandemic, COVID-19, environmental disasters, all of the, the issues that, that we see around the world are just big problems. And they move more quickly now than ever before. And like I said, government, one government can't do it on its own. There needs to be collective action and partnership to solve some of these big problems. And I learned that, uh, watching prime minister Martin and, 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 and some of, uh, the folks around him talk about these big issues, trying to manage, uh, significant problems. And I don't want to rewind the tape and we can talk about some of the, the, the issues that, that, that prime minister Martin and finance minister Martin had to, had to deal with, but I, I learned a great deal. By, by watching, uh, him and I, um, uh, I, I sort of picked up that sort of passion to try to deal with these problems. And, and, uh, you know, I, I worked for a, a large private equity fund for, for, for about 12 years, seven of those years on within climate finance back in sort of 2009 and 10, and I picked up a passion for it. So I've been very fortunate. Amazing. Good for you. Good for you. You, you touched briefly on the stakeholders, uh, you know, there's the governments, the, the policy piece, there's citizens, uh, there's the private sector. So before we get into how to solve it, let's spend a, a minute or two just framing what the, what the problem statement is. You know, what we've been hearing about climate change uh, for decades now. What is it and where are we at? Uh, from a global standpoint on climate change? So great question. So climate change is in its simplest form, the, the increase of greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, which warm the planet. And by warming the planet beyond a critical point, and the, the science says more than two degrees rise in global temperatures will have catastrophic impact on our ecosystems, our, uh, and biodiversity loss. And we can spend some time talking about that. I'm also on the board of the world wildlife fund. And that's something that, th that we see a great deal of strain on our food system and, and food supply, rising sea levels, which folks have spoken about and talked about some of the risks associated with that. And we've seen some of the, those crises develop globally, wildfires, and we saw some of the devastating wildfires along the, the Western 
seaboard and this past summer here in Canada, significant amount of wildfires, historic amount of wildfires and the impact to air quality and all of these problems that, that come from rising greenhouse gas emissions don't stay contained within one border. You know, a wildfire doesn't respect the border between Canada and the United States or the border between British Columbia and Alberta. That, that's not how it works. So that's why we need this collective action. And, and this is why it becomes a global challenge, not just correct. confined by borders. As you that's, that, that, that's, that, that's exactly right. So uh, a lot of the science it really comes from the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, where you have a group of scientists who uh, have done a great deal of research over many years to basically outline what we need to do, or excuse me, the science behind what we need to avoid from a, from a temperature rise perspective in order to prevent the worst effects of climate change. And we're already seeing it. And, and, and the science it has been pretty clear that we already may be past the point where we are unable to stop the effects of climate change. The, the piece that we're trying to solve for at this point in red is solving for the worst absolute scenario where you see the collapse of, 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 of our food supply and the rising of sea levels and the impact on, on human life and infrastructure. So that's, that's the part we're really trying to solve for here. It's, it's scary. I don't, I don't know, even though there's so much talk and so much happening on this topic, but I don't know if everybody understands the, the impact it would have on, on our daily life and our ability to, to sustain life on this planet. If we don't do, if we don't take action now. Yeah, you, listen, it, it's a great point. It's the whole boiling frog scenario, which obviously your viewers know quite well. You put a frog in a pot of water and you slowly tear up the temperature. It doesn't realize it's being hooked to death. We are, when we experience climate change, it is incredibly negative and it's incredibly quick. Perfect example, and this is just a, a personal anecdote, and I'm sure your viewers have, have, have their own examples. In uh, 2021, my wife and I were, we're in uh, beautiful British Columbia. We were in, we were traveling from Victoria to Tofino. And if any of your viewers have done that drive, it is, it is phenomenal. And the air quality in, uh, in that part of British Columbia had the worst air quality on the planet because of the wildfires that were taking place just south of the border and into BC. And, and that's just one anecdotal sort of point, but, but you know, when climate change hits, it hits hard. Uh, and that's, that's a small example of what we're trying to sort of mitigate and manage. Uh, well, what, what are the causes of what's contributing to, uh, this degradation or environmental degradation? We talk about fossil fuels yeah. like coal and oil and natural gas. So yeah, so it's coming really from two primary places, carbon emission and methane. Both have direct ties to excessive fossil fuel usage, and I think you saw coming out of out of uh, COP twenty eight language for the first time that talks about the uh, curtailment of uh, using fossil fuels, and you you saw commitments to triple the usage, for example, 
of renewable energy, capping the emissions from methane. And you see extensive public policy attention on these areas, which will help deal with reducing the usage of, of fossil fuel. And, and I, I, you know, I want to be clear about something as well. And I, I don't think there's enough discussion around this. This isn't an attack on those who work in the oil and gas uh, industry. I think we need to spend as, you know, folks who are fighting climate change, need to show a little bit of empathy for folks who work and, and have, have made a living. Um, and I'm really talking about the workers here for, for a moment, who, you know, are just trying to provide for their family and, and have a good quality of life. So we need to show some empathy for them. And I just want to state that for the record, but having said that, you know, you talk to any investment banker, for example, and ask them how easy is it to raise equity and capital for a new oil and gas field? It is incredibly difficult. Ask them how easy it is. And this is where, you know, I sort of come in and I'm sort of pumping my own, my own book here a little bit, but you, you ask, you ask a sustainable finance banker, how easy is it to raise equity or capital for a solar or wind project or a geothermal project? it's become much easier. So the market has shifted and towards renewables and, you know, actually the UN climate conference, there an interesting stat was, was mentioned and they talked about, you know, what is the, 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 you know, if Donald Trump becomes president, will he be able to stop this shift or, or, or stall it? And when he was president between 2016 and 2020, he removed the United States from the Paris climate agreement. So, you know, he did what he could to, to stop the, the transition to a, a low carbon environment. 75% of all power that came online between 2016 and 2020 were renewables. So even though, uh, Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris climate agreement and want to stop climate change, the American people and American business did not. So this, there, no one is going to be able to stop this shift. The, the question is how gradual will it have to be or how quickly do we need to continue to move forward in terms of accelerating the transition will be based on, you know, sort of how bad things get on from an environmental perspective, meaning there'll be more urgency put to it. The more climate issues we, we continue to we, we continue to see and, and I'd rather be in a world where we are making that transition as easy as possible for people and not trying to come up with drastic public policy initiatives and, and huge shifts quickly, which impact and harm people. So I, I'd rather see that a, 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 you know, quick, but gradual shift rather than a abrupt changes because uh, things, uh, environmental degradation has just increased so quickly that, you know, we're left with no choice. Well, that, that's a great segue into my next question, which is, so we, we now understand the scale of, of the challenge that we're dealing with. I guess my next question is, what is the cost of doing nothing from here onwards? And who are the stakeholders? How do we make this transition as smooth and as quick as possible. Who are the stakeholders? I know policy is one, private sector. So 
how does it all come together and we get on the same page? Great, great question. So from a, in terms of coordination, I think what happens at the UN uh, climate conference every year is incredibly helpful. I, I think Mark Carney does deserve significant credit in terms of bringing together back in, in Glasgow, the, all the, the 450 largest financial institutions and asset managers who collectively control about $130 trillion worth of assets who all committed to, to going net zero and following the Paris climate agreement. Can yeah. you just expand on the net zero? We keep hearing about net zero by 2050. What does that mean? Yeah. So basically it means that we are, that the carbon we emit is on a net basis, zero. So it's not an absolute zero, right? Got Which it. would, it is impossible. Uh, but it, it's a, it's it a balances net. out. Yeah. It, it balances out. It's exactly right. So, um, so, so Mark Carney deserves a great deal of credit, bringing these financial institutions together and attempting to mobilize that capital to fund this transition to a net zero economy. And the, in terms of like the IMF, the, uh, IEA have come up with a figure in order for the world to transition to a net zero economy over the next 30 years, will take about a hundred trillion dollars wow. over, over 30 years. So an incredible amount of capital. And like I said, government can't do it alone. So you need government, you need the private sector, you need the science to back it up. And you're seeing that from the IPCC. Again, I apologize for the acronyms, IP, the IPCC, and you're going to have folks who from academia and the not-for-profit sector supporting and all of us together, we will get there. I, I, like I said, I started off this conversation about saying, I'm an optimist. We will solve this problem. I just want to make sure that we try to solve it before the problem, before, like I said, we need to take uh, drastic action and, and, you know, uh, people's livelihoods are, are impacted incredibly negatively. So that's, that's what I'm trying to avoid by, by, by some of the work that I'm doing. You, you briefly mentioned that it's, it's very easy these days to fund green initiatives versus the, the traditional energy sector. What role, in your opinion, could innovation play in all this? And what are the, the solutions or options that, that are alternative to fossil fuels? Yeah, great, great question. So I think there, there's, there, first of all, the climate tech is a incredibly important piece for what we're, you know, what, what we're trying to achieve. The IMF has specifically said that climate tech will play a significant role in what we're doing. And you're seeing, for example, greater yields out of solar panels, even though there's a great deal of debate around carbon capture and storage, it will play a role. Small scale nuclear uh, reactors will play a role. If we're really trying to solve the problem, we're going to have to be comfortable with a sort of multi-pronged solution or solutions to this very dynamic problem. So like there's certain people who are just anti-nuclear will always be anti-nuclear and that's fine. But if you're trying to solve the, the, you're trying to follow the carbon and solve for that two degree Celsius or maintaining a two degree Celsius increase or, or less then nuclear will play a role. 
it, it provides baseload power. You, you need it at this point, carbon capture and storage. We're not going to get off, uh, oil and gas anytime, you know, uh, anytime, any reasonable sort of amount of time, uh, in any reasonable amount of time. So with the existing oil and gas that, 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 that's online, trying to bolt on carbon capture and storage will be important. That's a uh, technology that we're going to need. Uh, battery storage, improvements in battery storage are going to be critical. In, uh, bolting on battery storage with solar and wind is part of the solution. As we know, being in Canada, the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. So having that bolt on uh, support from battery storage will be important. So again, it's a multi-pronged solution. Geothermal will, 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 will play a role and there's a uh, massive amount of technological innovation that's going into these different, different areas, EVs, EV infrastructure. Um, I mean, just speaking of EV, I was talking to one of my counselors just earlier this week. We talked about, you know, if we, everybody went to an EV transition, like they, you know, they, they bought, they bought a, bought an electric vehicle, the city wouldn't have the uh, grid, the infrastructure to be able to support it. They, so that's a huge other topic that we, we need to be thinking about. And, you know, it goes back to then how do you finance the infrastructure, the, the key pieces to bring it all together. But, you know, we, we, we don't have enough time to get into that. But uh, Well, well I, I'm glad you raised that, Imran. I know we're sort of running out of time here, and I, I apologize. But a couple of points. So Doug Ford came into, and I don't want to turn this into politics, but, but I'm, you know, I'm going to. Doug Ford came into office, canceled all the solar and wind power generation that was coming online that he could. He couldn't cancel existing contracts that, that, that were in place because it would have bankrupted the province, but he, he, he canceled the ones that were just about to come online. That power supply was and is critical to our grid because now we're in a world where Doug Ford has turned on the, the natural gas power plants that were supposed to be used only for backup uh, power. He's turned them on full time. Doug Ford has, in essence, recarbonized our grid. And when you think about uh, past previous liberal governments who shut down coal-fired power plants, who decarbonized our grid, dropping asthma rates in kids by 60%, that's one of the benefits of, of taking strong climate action, uh, Doug Ford has actually recarbonized our grid and putting, which will put human health in, in, in jeopardy. Uh, again, you, you'll see, uh, for sure, you're going to see an increase in, in asthma rates again in kids, uh, and it's going to impact our environment. And, and now Doug Ford is talking about, oh, maybe we'll start looking at solar and wind again. It's like, it, it, it's, you know, this is what happens when you sort of have government making decisions, making it up as they go along. And it's, it's a significant problem. So, well, I know we're coming up on, on time. Just briefly, if you wanted to give advice to small to medium enterprises or large enterprise organizations across Canada and, and North America, what, because we talked about different stakeholders, you know, policy, government policy is one, but, you know, every, corporation, every citizen has a role to play in this, in, in this solution, right? So what advice would you give to organizations? What steps should they be taking? What type of innovation 
should they be looking at to make sure that they, they are moving in the right direction? I think that's a great question. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into bore everyone about, uh, bore everyone about scope one, scope two, scope three, so, sort of a, a analysis. But what I would, what I would say to small and medium sized businesses is start with the low hanging fruit in terms of what investments can you make in terms of decarbonizing, for example, your, um, uh, your CapEx, your sort of your, your physical s- surroundings that will do what's right for the environment and also save you money. So perfect examples like building retrofits. There are companies out there that will come in and they provide energy as a service. They'll come in and they'll audit your, your building. And so they'll, they'll say, look, you know, we'll replace your windows, your HVAC system. We'll put in led lights and, you know, basically provide a full wrap of energy services to your physical infrastructure. They look at your, your energy bills and says, this is, it's going to save you 90%, uh, or 80% or 50%, whatever the percentage is on your bill. And they say, we'll come in and we'll, we'll finance hundred percent of it. It won't cost you a dime, but we keep the, the majority of the savings until we recoup our costs. After which point we then, it then reverses. You keep. 90% 90% of the savings or the overwhelming majority of the savings. And we keep a small amount for a, of that savings for a period of time. That is like low hanging fruit and it saves the small and medium sized business significant money while at the same time doing what's right for the environment. Like that is like point, point one. And, and that is very easy to do. Lots of companies out there provide that service. There are a few that actually have gotten some financing from like the Canada infrastructure bank, for example, and others. And that, that would be the sort of quick bit of advice I would give decarbonize and improve, improve your, improve the economics of your physical surroundings. That, that that's the easiest thing to do. Thank you very much, uh, Vince. We unfortunately have to wrap it up, but thanks for sharing your insights. Obviously this is such a large topic that we can't possibly address every aspect of it in, in 30 minutes. I'd, I'd love to bring you back uh, some other time and t- continue to talk about this important issue. To our viewers, thank you for tuning in. We will be back with another episode of Behind the Growth. I wish you good health and the best in 2024. Take care. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Behind the Growth. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow along on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This podcast is brought to you by Mobile Live, a team of digital experts bringing intelligence and efficiency to how businesses sell, serve, and save. For more episodes of Behind the Growth, please visit mobilelive.ca slash podcast.